Let's open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1 as we continue our study in the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 32 this morning as we take a pretty big chunk, pretty much all dealing with the same kind of concept as we looked at our catechism this morning, this idea of you know knowing our misery. Well, this is going to be at the forefront of, of our text today as we look at sin and what it causes in the peop, in people. Before we open God's Word, let's go again to Him in prayer and ask for His help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, we pray that You would give us discernment. As we even studied this morning from 1 Kings, that wisdom is something that comes from You. Discernment is ultimately from You. And so, Lord, we pray that You would give us that as we open Your Word. We are unable to understand Your Word. We're unable to understand You without Your help. And so we pray that help this morning as we come to this, Your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I read through this text, and this is a text I've studied many times, many different times, and it made me think this time of this particular comic. Uh, if you're into comics, you may appreciate this, but it's Justice League. And there's this thing in the Justice League called Bizarro World. And if you're familiar with Bizarro World, it's just completely backwards. Everything about it's just really weird even reading some of the stuff. The name of the planet is Earth spelled backwards, and so I don't even know how to pronounce it. I just skip over that part. The The, the world is a big square as opposed to a big sphere. Um, um, it's good to do wrong in this world. It's, it's the worst sin you can actually commit in Bizarre World is to do the quote-unquote perfect deed in the Bizarre World. Their motto is actually, and it's just grammatically incorrect because it's Bizarre World. Us do opposite of all earthly things. Us hate beauty. Us love ugliness. Is big crime to make anything perfect in bizarro world. So yeah, it's, it's bizarro world. That's all I can say. And so as we get to this section of Romans 1, we kind of have this picture of our own bizarro world right here on earth. But the sad part is it's just really our reality. That's the sad part. It's our own world, which is upside down because of sin and death. Things that were never intended to be, meaning they weren't created that way, but are now a normal part of our everyday. This is in contrast to the idea that Paul was speaking of just prior to this, that that he longed to be with the Roman church, right? Because there were common things that they had together in Christ. Now they had a common message of truth to a lost world which can deliver them from this bizarre world that we live in and bring them into a world of truth and righteousness. And in order to understand the magnitude of the gospel and the redemption that we have in Christ, and that the catechism alluded to this perfectly this morning, in order to understand this, we must understand who we were, this state of misery that we were in outside of Christ and that the world, the lost world, is currently in the midst of. As we move through this passage today, we'll have that truth truth laid out very plainly for us, very systematically. So we'll consider three main ideas. First, God is revealed. Second, 
yet man suppresses the truth. And then third point, yet man suppresses righteousness. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Romans 1, looking at verses 18 through 32. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Romans 1, 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts in their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So last week we ended with this. If you look at verse 17, we ended with this concept, the righteous shall live by faith. Remember, the apostle took that from Habakkuk chapter 2. And we went and we looked at Habakkuk chapter 2 where the Lord is making a comparison between the pagan Babylonians and the people who would serve him or who should serve him, his own people. The prideful, those who think that they can deliver themselves or that they live in their own power. He's comparing these to the Babylonians were puffed up and their soul was not upright. But the righteous will live by faith. And we know that the faith is a gift from God so that no one will have anything to be puffed up about. Right? So that no one will boast. So there's a question then that needs to be answered as we come to this point in the text at the end of verse 17. If the righteous shall live by faith, what about the unrighteous? How are they going to live? We're given the answer in these preceding verses that we just read. 
questions, even from the reading of them, had this kind of heaviness to them. I don't know if you felt it, but I just as I was reading, it was so heavy. Not only is this question answered, but it helps us to understand the depravity of man, man's need for salvation, man's need for a Savior. You see it very plainly as you read through those words. We're going to see more of that idea going forward as we get into the chapters in Romans, but this is kind of a baseline for it, helping us understand the difference between the believer and the unbeliever and how they perceive God and then how they respond to God as well. We've been studying through the Confession of Faith on Wednesday nights. We recently, I think, made this kind of helpful distinction as the Confession's been looking at unbelieving man and believing man and the difference between them and the covenants that they have with God. And I think in order for us to best understand pre-fall man, man before the fall of sin, the first couple chapters of Genesis, I think it's helpful for us to understand then redeemed man, who we are in Christ. In Christ we have those things that were lost because of the fall, including the promise of eternal life, not according to our own adherence to the law now, of course, but according to Christ's own righteousness, which we have in Him. And so as we look at this passage, the best way for us to look at it then is this is the opposite of redeemed man. This is the opposite of man in Christ, completely backwards from the way that we should have been, the way it's currently in Christ. For the believer, this seems much like a bizarro kind of world. Nothing seems right because nothing is except for the kingdom of God coming into the world. Having this understanding, I think, is going to help us in this passage. We're going to look at each of those points from a standpoint of what is said about man's condition and then how God responds to that condition. As we look at verse 18, verse 18 kind of serves as a, as a bit of a thesis for the rest of the chapter going forward. If you look at 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The righteous shall live by faith, shall live by faith. And what does the unrighteous of one unrighteousness of man get? The unrighteousness of man gets the wrath of God, which is revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. The primary truth, of course, that they suppress is the revelation of God himself. And that brings us to the first point, God is revealed. Look with me again at verses 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What can be known is plain. Why is it plain? Because God has shown it to them. Right? Pretty, pretty simple. There's no hiding this. We read from Psalm 1, or we read from Psalm 19.1 this morning, the heavens reveal the glory of God. It cannot be hidden. This isn't a byproduct of their creation. This is God's purpose in their creation. God purposed that His glory would be revealed in their creation. And we read this in the children's catechism. You could ask many children of this room who are now grown, what did, why did God make you and all things? For His own glory. Very simple, right? His glory we, will be revealed. 
God doesn't hide His glory. His glory, by definition, is revealed. So unbelieving man knows all about God. And not just the idea that there is a God, right? Not just looking outside and seeing, yes, there is a God, because all this didn't just appear. But they know more than that. We read this in verse 20. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Even His invisible attributes, meaning these more abstract things about God, these ideas about God are clear. Sure, we can look out at the stars and understand that there must be a God, right? These things didn't just kind of spin into existence, right? There has to be a God as we look around and see the things that are around us. But we also know that the Creator has to be all-powerful. He has to be eternal. He has to be all-knowing. That the Creator is not just a mere man. We know mere men, and they cannot do these things, right? These things God has chosen to reveal concerning Himself. Just just from His creation. And what is the result of this revelation that He has given us? So man is without excuse. This answers definitively the problem that is oftentimes asked. I've been asked many times as a minister over the years. I'm sure you've heard this, maybe even thought it yourself. What about the the islander? It's always an islander. It's always an islander. In the middle of nowhere that has never heard about Jesus. They're without excuse. Right? There aren't any exceptions that are made here in Romans chapter 1 concerning anyone at all. Any false worship, misattribution of God's being onto man. These are sinful actions that deserve judgment. 100%. You've probably heard that ignorance of the law is no excuse. right? We've all probably heard that maybe even from an officer of the law. Well, when it comes to God... There is no ignorance. Everyone knows. There's no secret. This is a great starting point. If you've ever speaking to someone about the Lord who claims to not to not believe in, in any kind of God, it's a great starting point to tell others about our Savior because we can assume that they already know about God. How can we make that assumption? Well, we read it. It's plain. Here, in this text, it tells us they already know. We don't need to derive God from logical proofs or natural evidence. It's already there. He exists, and they know that to be true. Our starting point can be the same as Jesus' starting point. Repent and believe. The specifics of our faith are learned from the Bible, but the fact that there is a God and we aren't Him is very plain. And so what does man do with that truth then? Right, This very plain truth that is evident. Well, they suppress it. That brings us to the second point. Yet man suppresses the truth. Look with me at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
So again, they know the truth about God. In fact, God in His divine sovereignty and perfect wisdom chose to reveal things about Himself to them. He's not keeping Himself secret. He's done this to all people. God could have chosen to remain concealed from His creation after the fall, but He did just the opposite of that. He decided to make Himself so plain that we are left without excuse. And then what did man then do with that truth? They did not honor God as God or give thanks to Him in any way. Rather, they became futile in their thinking. The word here means like aimless or purposefulness or empty, as as if their pursuit of God and gratitude toward God provide purpose and satisfaction. Of course, they do for us in Christ, and then they're rejecting these things and accepting the exact opposite of these things. We continue on verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is where things start to get bizarre, right? Especially for those of us who are in Christ, we recognize this. The unbeliever doesn't recognize this as bizarre. We have to understand that. We're going to get to that in a moment. But remember in Genesis 1, what did God say back in Genesis 1 concerning the creation of man? Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. Look again there at verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul knew his Bible. He knew Genesis 1. He knew birds and animals and creeping things, that these are the things that God created man to have sub, to subdue, but yet now they are putting themselves in subjection to. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what does the fool say in his heart? Psalm 14.1, there is no God. Instead, he thinks he takes things that were once in subjection to him and creates images of them and worships them putting himself in subjection to them. He claims his creator isn't real. He claims his subjects, those who were put in subjection to him, to be his creator. This is upside down completely. This is the created order turned on its head. Everything is opposite of how it should be. and We haven't even gotten warmed up yet. Why is this? Because unbelieving man takes the truth that he knows about God. How do we know he knows? Again, we've been told that, right? Already we've been told he knows this truth, which is enough to leave him without excuse, and he suppresses it. He pushes it down. He attempts to hide it, like Adam trying to run and hide from Almighty God in the cool of the garden that morning in Eden. And what is God's response to this? He gives them up to it. Verse 24 and 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We'll get more into this as we move into chapter 2, but the judgment of God is part, in part is His removal, is His removal of the restraints from man. Meaning He just gave them up to their minds. You don't have to look far to see this, of course. I mean, just thinking of this idea of like worshiping the creeping things and the, just a direct, a direct comparison to this pagan religions and that the world, even things that the world themselves would consider to be pagan, things like witchcraft and druidism and all these kinds of weird things. Nearly two million adherents in this country, people in this country, that adhere to these kinds of things, which if you'd have looked at the same statistics 20 years ago, it would have been at 100,000. So in 20 years, this has increased 20-fold. These are people who worship frogs and clouds and rock formations and all kinds of weird stuff, and this isn't to make fun of them. Again, don't hear me doing that, but it's simply to point out the fact that thing that God or that Paul told us that God spoke back in Genesis one, they exchanges the truth about God for a lie. They're worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. And this isn't just those pagan religions, which is easy to point at and look. They shouldn't be doing. They shouldn't be worshiping the creeping things of the earth, right? But any false religion ultimately falls into this category because all false religions, at the end of the day, worship their Creator. Man, they worship the creature rather than the creator. How does the church combat this? This idea that the truth is being suppressed. The truth about God that everyone knows is being suppressed. When it comes to answers about the truth, how do we combat ideas that would suppress the truth? New Testament gives us this answer over and over again. We preach Christ and Him crucified. We preach the full counsel of God's Word. We give them the only truth that we know. The only truth that we can say this is definitively the truth because it is God's Word. In fact, it's the only foundation for any truth. What else would we even say? We aren't ashamed of it, meaning that we believe God's Word is able to do that exactly which God purposes it to do, right? As we read back in 16, we aren't ashamed of His Word. We know that it will do exactly what He says. We do indeed believe that the Gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so we preach the Gospel. And we leave the power of that up to God because He's got plenty of power to go around, to do as He pleases, to take that truth that's being suppressed and unsuppress it if He so chooses. We're all evidence of that. There's plenty of evidence in His room that He does as He pleases. To God be the glory. Yet there's another component of this. As we move through Romans, we'll get the gospel truth, but we're also going to get this call to righteousness. Right? We see this kind of setting itself up here in chapter 1. and So it's important for us to understand how the righteousness of God is being suppressed by the unbeliever as well, and that brings us to the second or the last point. Yet man suppresses the truth. Look with me again at verse twenty six, the first part of twenty six. For this reason, this idea that God or that they have exchanged the truth about God and served the Creator rather than the creature, for this reason God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. 
we, before we read further, I want to sit here and understand what is taking place. Again, back in verse 18, we read that the wrath of God is revealed against those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath is revealed is in part of what we're reading here. This wrath of God that God has gave them up. This is God's wrath that He would give them up to this, turning them over to their own corrupt minds rather than delivering them from this state. In His wrath, He has chosen to give them up to their corruption. He's not creating corruption in them. They're already corrupt. Right? He's giving them up to that. And so what does that corruption then look like? Verses 26 and 27. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Just like above, we have a turning upside down of the created order. In their suppression of the truth, they worship the creature rather than the creator. And in their unrighteousness, rather than remember the fact that God created man and woman to be in relationship with one another, they turn instead to the same sex and have relations with them. The mandate there in chapter 1 to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it is now impossible. Not just impossible because man has put himself in subject to the creeping things of this earth, but also impossible because man's relationship with other men or women's relationship with other women cannot possibly bear offspring. It's impossible to be fruitful and multiply under either one of these things. This is an extension of the suppression of the truth that everyone knows. Yet if you follow with the thought from above, worshiping the creature rather than the creator, these unnatural homosexual relations are really just another expected outcome of the fall of man. Everything about the fall is upside down from the way that it should be. The worship of creeping things on the ground isn't very far from the worship and infatuation with self and the dishonorable desires that are demonstrated here in 26 and 27 that flow from that worship of self. The sin of creature worship has many branches. Homosexuality is just one of the outcomes of the created order being turned upside down. And all of these actions from the fact that God has given them over to their corruption. We see this going forward in verse 28 and following. Look at, look at 28 with me. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. So what follows in verse 29 and following is this outflow from that, to do what ought not be done. Rather than communion with God and love and care for one another, the first two, or the greatest two commandments, right? That we should love God and love one another. Instead, everything is the exact opposite of that. So let's look at 
29 through 31. And as I'm, as I'm reading through this, again, think of the way that we were created in this natural created order that we have and look at how all of that is turned on its head in these three verses, 29 through 31. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And we could walk through each one of these sins and describe how it is the upside down version of the way things should be. But I'll just pick a couple out to show the point. A couple that are pretty apparent that when we see them. I mean, take this idea of gossip. They are gossips, which just kind of seems to show up there. In a perfect world, we would only ever, think about us in Christ, right? In us in Christ, we would only ever affirm one another and build one another up, seeking the success of one another, especially in the faith. We want one another to succeed in all things. Yet with gossip, this idea of gossip, what is it? It's just the opposite. The only purpose of, there's no other purpose of gossip, gossip other than to tear someone else down without them knowing about it. Why would you do that? It's not only tearing them down, but in, when, in tearing them down, what are you doing to yourself or seemingly doing to yourself in that situation? You're elevating yourself, which is the exact opposite of all God-given mandates concerning how we should love God and love one another. It's one of the sins that makes total sense in the world. To the unbelieving heart, it makes total sense because the world is all about self-satisfaction and infatuation. But this has no place in Christ. Another one that just kind of seems to just hop off the page, this idea of disobedience to parents. We have a lot of children here. This is a good one. According to God's structure, what do children do? They obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. We see this in Ephesians chapter 6. We see it in back in Genesis. We see it all over the place. Yet in the world, it is not right. Parents should really obey their children and what they need because a child should be able to make choices for themselves even when they can't tie their own shoes or read. They should be able to make those kinds of choices for themselves. And in the world, this makes perfect sense because personal freedom trumps any kind of standard for holiness. It has no place in Christ where structure and order in the family only mimic the order that we find in creation as a whole. And we could go on. We could go on with every single one of these sins and talk about how they are the exact upside-down opposite of what we should have in this world. But we won't. But how does the world respond to this? Verse 32, this idea that all of these things are upside down, that they have exchanged natural relations for unnatural relations, that they exchange the truth about God for a lie. All of this, sum it up, how do they respond to their works? Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They know the truth about Scripture. They know God's invisible attributes along with those things that are revealed and plain. That the one who sins dies. 
that God's character cannot, cannot have sin. And they know that these, their sins deserve death. They know there's a righteous God who will not tolerate sin. But they not only do it, they celebrate it. It's upside down. It doesn't make any sense. It shouldn't make any sense to us. So then how do we respond, church? Because we have this world that we live in, and if you don't understand from reading this text, there's not a whole lot of hope in and of itself, right? It's just spiraling down. It's going to keep getting, it's just going to keep spiraling. It's just bad. How do we respond? We point fingers. Is that a good way to do it? That's never really worked. We look at it and say, I told you. Do we wish for these old days that somehow like exist? Somewhere that were better, supposedly, uh, that, that people keep talking about, even though this, this was, you know, 2,000 years ago that Paul was saying this. But, you know, normally when people are talking about the good old days, they're not talking about that far ago. But are we longing for something like that? That's not the answer, and we know that. Jesus had a response to the world when he saw it. Remember, Jesus is the righteous judge of creation. He came and He lived a perfect life and in Him we have His righteousness that will be judged according to. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, holds all the world together with His being. Yet, when He saw the world, when He looked at the world and saw this debased mind that they were in, we have His reaction recorded for us. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. And as we read this, remember this is God the Creator, God who gave them up to their minds, God who has given them over to these things. This is Jesus our Savior also, the Son of Man made flesh who's come to save His people from their sins. And while He was on this earth and doing ministry among the people, this is what He saw, Matthew 9, verses 25 through 31. 20, 27, excuse me, through 31. I got my verses messed up. That is uh, 35 through 38. I don't know why I broke that down. Sorry. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And when Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, so notice these crowds, what did these crowds have? They had disease and affliction. They had all these signs of the world on them. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Literally the language here, when when the apostle here gives us this word harassed and helpless, the, the literal meaning of the language there is that they have been skinned alive and cast aside. No one to help. 
no hope. When Jesus saw them, that's what he saw harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And when Jesus saw them, what was his reaction? Compassion. Jesus' reaction to them, his compassion didn't change what was right and what was wrong. It didn't make sin into not sin. It didn't change holiness into corruption. The standard of God still remained perfect and true and right. Yet, he had compassion. And it moved him to action. So the question, I guess, this morning, first, is are you harassed and helpless this morning? If so, Jesus Christ is your only hope. While you have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, Jesus Christ is the truth. And His righteousness is your only hope as you stand before a Holy Father one day. Truly, He has compassion on those who call upon His name for salvation. I'm evidence. So many in this room are evidence of that fact. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. What about for us in the church? As we look at this world and we see harassed and helpless, we know full well what Jesus was talking about, but do we know about the compassion that He felt? We should turn from our own wickedness, of course, and turn to righteousness, not to earn our salvation, because Jesus has already done that, thankfully. But yet, in Christ, we are no longer harassed. We are no longer helpless. And He can no longer say of us that we do not have a shepherd, because we do. And our shepherd bids us, He gives us instructions there in Matthew 9, to call upon the Lord of the harvest that He would send workers into His fields. As we do that, we must also ask, how is He sending me? How is He sending you to be compassionate towards those who we still see in the world as upside down? What is He calling us to do? How is He sending us out? The world doesn't need our morality. You've heard me say this many times. They need our Savior. So go to Him. Go to them on behalf of the Lord. Go to the Lord on behalf of the lost world and pray that He would send workers. And I'd say pray that He would even send you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.